namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami We come now on to the section of this. Uh, the chapter is called uh, A Buddha in Every Realm, and this section is called Dukkha. And so we're going through the three characteristics of existence, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, and the, as part of the basic map of the principal meditation uh, methods and approaches. So Dukkha. Dukkha means unsatisfactoriness. The fact that no experience can permanently fulfill us. We look at experience, perception. If it's changing, can it be something permanently satisfying? No. Even if it's truly, deeply pleasant, that pleasure has to come to an end, eventually. Therefore, it is dukkha. Some people, when they hear, when they hear that, sorry, some people, when they hear that the Buddha taught that everything is unsatisfactory, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, they think he's being really negative. But the word Dukkha is very subtle. Du means wrong or out of balance. Akka is the center of a wheel where the axle goes through. Probably the, the word axle is connected to the Pali Akka. <clears throat> so Akka is the center of a wheel where the axle goes through. So the image of Dukkha is that of a wheel that is not spinning truly. It's out of kilter. It's like many of us have had the experience in airports with those. We always seem to choose, I regularly seem to choose the trolley with the wonky wheel. Or in, don't know if they still have trolleys in supermarkets these days, but uh, back in the days when they did have trolleys in supermarkets, and, uh, it was easy. You could find your your cart smashing into the the uh, the uh, the shelves of um, fruit juice and cabbages and whatnot. So that's dukkha. <laughs> that the, the wheel is out of true, and, or if on a bicycle, when your when your wheel is not is not true, then it, it throws things off balance. Even if things that are blissful, sorry, even things that are blissful are subject to change, and because they change, they cannot be completely permanently satisfying. That's not to say that some experiences are not delightful or beautiful, delicious or wholesome like a blissful meditation state or a piece of music by Bach. But the point is that pleasant experience is unsustainable, therefore it is dukkha. So this is a point that's often often discussed or sometimes people uh, uh, misunderstand. But I like it, it's really pleasant, how can it be dukkha? Um, so it's helpful to reflect that translating the word dukkha as suffering, it's not really, doesn't cover all the dimensions. So it's almost one of those untranslatable Pali terms um, because uh, uh, something that is, is sort of deeply pleasant and, and wonderfully um, say uh, wholesome and uh, and liberating uh, I think I was telling the story about uh, Venerable Achan Mahabur when he was a young monk um, having blissful mind states and then Venerable Achan Man telling him he was taking the wrong direction he should spend more time uh, developing vipassana and not getting absorbed in those 
beautiful and wholesome states. Did I mention that in these readings? No? Okay. <laughs> I forget what I said to which groups of people uh, and when I said it. So um, one of the famous stories out of the Thai forest tradition in the, at least the last century was when uh, uh, Venerable Ajahn Mahabua was a, a young bhikkhu. He'd be, been a study monk, hence the, the title Maha in his name. So that means you've, you've uh, studied a certain number of, of levels of, of Pali and mastered that and passed exams. So many of the forest monastics were not Pali scholars or academics of any kind. So it was unusual for someone to have been an academic monk and then to join the, the forest tr tradition. Because in Thailand, the forest tradition and the, and the academic um, sort of groups are, are quite far apart from each other, generally. It's very different from other Buddhist countries like uh, Burma or Sri Lanka, but uh, in Thailand that's the way it's gone. So anyway... Uh, Ajahn Mahabua, as a, um, uh, a keen young study monk, um, decided he wanted to learn meditation, and he went, he found uh, Venerable Ajahn Man and went to go and study under his guidance. So in, in those days, rather than having fixed monasteries that were in one, one place all the time, um, they would set up a temporary camp, or the, uh, an Ajahn would live in a particular place for a, a year or two, or a, a rains retreat, and the locals would set up a small, a simple sala and a, and a few kutis, perhaps, and a, you know, a bathing place, and then dig a well for a bathing place and such like. Very, very basic amenities. And then uh, people would stay with the teacher for a little while, receive teachings, and then go off and live in different parts of the country and practice meditation on their own. And then after a few months, come back and check in with the teacher to see uh, how things were going. That was the, the model in, in many of the uh, the earlier. So many of the stories of people studying with Ajahn Man is like trying to find him. You know, if you read the biographies or stories of the various Ajahns, like, well, I yeah, I went to Kaukio and he wasn't there. And I went up to Sukondako and he wasn't there either. Then I heard he was in Jangwat Lui and I went to Lui and he wasn't there either, you know. At least they didn't have cell phones or GPS, you know, obviously, in those days. Didn't have phones. So anyhow, um, the young Ajahn Mahabua had gone off to practice by himself, having received instruction. And he was very ardent and obviously someone with, someone with a lot of paramita and spiritual skill and determination. And he developed extremely uh, bright and beautiful, wholesome, delightful mind states, very deep states of meditation. And he'd never experienced anything like this in his life. And he thought, this is wonderful, this is incredible, this is marvelous, this is uh, my, my dream come true, this is exactly what I should be doing, great. So he went back to, to speak to Venerable Chan Man to sort of report his experience. And he was kind of like, at least as I was told, he was sort of quite pleased with himself. He was a young bhikkhu, was a study monk, just coming out of the college and, and only been meditating for a little while. And already my mind is quite, uh, quite peaceful, quite calm, quite focused, and having all these these wonderful, blissful, profound states of concentration. But to his surprise, as they, the story goes, uh, Venerable Ajahn Man was not uh, very impressed and said, well, don't waste your time doing that. Um, rather, it's more important to, to just sustain enough concentration to watch the five khandas arising and passing and, and um, don't, don't uh, put your attention onto these blissful states. And the story goes that the young uh, Ajahn Mahabur disagreed with him and they had an argument, which is extremely unusual. That disagreeing with your teacher, who is supposed to be an arahant, is not generally taken as a good idea. <laughs> but uh, Ajahn Mahabur, one of his characteristics is he's extremely fearless and quite punchy. 
And so that he took issue with his teacher and said, no, there can't be anything wrong with these states. They're absolutely beautiful, they're blissful, they're totally wholesome. I, I've, I know, you know, I've experienced this for days and days, weeks. And so these are absolutely wholesome. There can't be anything wrong with them. You know, you're, venerable sir, you're, you know, you're wrong. Again, I'm putting words into his mouth. He didn't speak English either, but uh, that was the, the tone or the, the, the thrust of it. And uh, of course, the venerable Ajahn Man would not budge and said, you're asking me to be your teacher. This is what I'm teaching you. Uh, telling you this is this is not going to be anything uh, liberating. So, uh, as the story goes, that the other monks around the monastery <laughs> could hear the noise, the, the, the raised voices from under the Ajahn's kuti, and were a bit afraid of what was going on, and left them to it. And eventually, uh, the young Ajahn Mahabhur paid his respects and left, took off, and went to go and practice by himself again. And as the story goes, once more. Uh, he, no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get back into those same blissful states. And uh, that there was something in him that, re- that remembered that the, t- the teacher disagreed with him, <laughs> hadn't given that advice. And no matter how, and he had a, was a person with extraordinary will and energy, but he couldn't force his mind to get back into those blissful states. And then, so then he came back to Ajahn Man and paid respects. <laughs> Venerable sir, you know, I think you might be right, and uh, asked for more instruction. And uh, eventually, he became an arahant as well. But um, a very significant comment that he that uh, he makes um, with respect to that was that he said, "If anyone other than Ajahn Man had been responsible for depriving me of those mind states, I would have killed him." So, uh, maybe he's exaggerating. But perhaps not. Yeah, he was a, as I said, he was a very punchy, pugnacious kind of a character. Um, and but he made that comment publicly, yeah. and so that there you have these extremely wholesome, beautiful states, but they become a cause for homicidal feelings because they're dukkha because they couldn't be kept. There was things that the conditions that obstructed them. So even something like that is dukkha because. Uh, once it's out of reach and it can't be experienced again, then what arose for, for that uh, young Ajahn Mahabur was r- rage and indignation. And, and as he said, if it would have been anyone other than the Venerable Ajahn Mahabur, he would have killed him. You know, how could you take this precious thing away from me? You know, you deserve to die. <laughs> so, uh, it's a very graphic example of how Dukkha is there, even in, in wholesome and, and delightful states. So that the uh, also uh, another uh, I mentioned a piece of music by Bach. Yeah, there was one. Uh, don't think he's here in this winter retreat. No. <laughs> An older English gentleman who used to come on the ten-day retreats, the retreat center. And I was talking about dukkha in this fashion. He said, um, "Ajahn, I have to disagree with you because the music of Bach is perfect. It is not dukkha. <laughs> there is no dukkha. It is absolutely perfect. There's no. It's not dukkha." I said, so you're telling me the one condition in the whole universe, <laughs> or the entirety of the universe, through you know this galaxy, other galaxies, this dimension, all other dimensions, infinite past, the infinite future, the one perfect condition, the one sankara that is not dukkha, in the entire universe is the music of Bach. And I kind of ramped it up a bit. And he said, yes, <laughs> it's perfect. I, I, you know, it's absolutely flawless. <laughs> so I tried a few things like, well, if you start to lose your hearing and you can't hear it anymore, you know, you know what about that? Well, I haven't lost my hearing. <laughs> or, or if somebody's 
supposed to be playing Bach, but they're playing it badly. He said, well, it's not Bach then, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so I tried this and tried that. <laughs> okay, well, if he wants to carry on with the, you know, if he wants to take his perfect condition and keep it, then he'd be happy. Sadhu anamodana. But anyway, it's a, it's one of those observations. You know, it's the Buddha is not sort of dictating that, uh, but rather saying, Sabesankara dukkha, all conditioned things are unsatisfactory. Take a look and see. You know, can you find anything that is permanently satisfying? So, any questions, thoughts, arguments? <laughs> Anybody? Actually, I don't know. It's not just about it. No, don't be afraid. So, please, if you have things to ask or say, yes. Um, particularly, it seems that. Uh if you use something uh, to lift your spirit, like say that again. Uh, something using something to lift your spirit, something you right. like, like uh, music or uh, conversation or anything. Uh, it seems that dukkha might be where you're kind of out of it, like when it's finished mm-hmm. and you're so delighted in it, and you're back to normal, and then you have some encounter, and um, because it was so delightful, and you see how uh, normal and not so. Yeah. There's many, many ways, many, many ways that, that we encounter that dukkha. That this is this is really pleasant. This is so great. Oh no, them again. Oh, back to that. Yeah, because you set yourself up by investing. This is good. This is right. This is this is delightful. By the heart investing in that and say buying into that quote unquote good, then it's like you set yourself up. Like oh man. She's driving too fast. <laughs> She's not going to make that corner. <laughs> and, you, know, you crash because it's like, oh, because you, we, you set yourself up. So it's really, in terms of, sort of mindfulness and full awareness, like sati sampajanya, getting to know that, set, like the, the jargon is easily used or often used in the monasteries, setting yourself up for dukkha. So it's not having like a sour or negative approach. It's just knowing when you, when you are, when you do find something, like that is very satisfying or comforting and yes you know lifts your spirits to be knowing this is the feeling of lifting the spirits that's all it doesn't mean to say that the other things in my world are, are, are depressing or bad or wrong or but this this is what this sweet taste is like it's this way and so you're not you're still experiencing that refreshment just like if you're thirsty and you have a drink of water, yeah, it's still refreshing. But you're not looking at, to it as something intrinsically good. It's always that grasping and, oh, this is the good thing. Oh, that's a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, I wish I didn't have to bother with that. Really noticing that um, when the mind makes those kind of judgments. Like, I wish I didn't have to bother with that. <sighs> that. And then to, to catch that and say, so does that mean that the Dhamma does not exist <laughs> when that particular set of perceptions is going on? And you only have to ask that question or something like that. But, and you, you, I find you can't even get to the end of the sentence before it, just, it falls apart. Well, of course, you know, the, the Dhamma is here, even if it's, you've got a, a, a twisted ankle or you've got a, you had a headache for a day and a half. It's like, yeah, well, of course the Dhamma is still here. The, the headache is, pre, is occupying my attention. But um, there is the feeling of, wouldn't it be nice if this wasn't here? But here it is, and and so that you're you're recognizing those tastes of you know, bitterness or sweetness, but you're not investing in them, like in trying to 
uh, say, uh, hang on to the ones that are delightful or refreshing and, and resenting, pushing away the ones that are challenging or uncomfortable. So it's that relish. Do you know the word relishing? So that's so to not relish. So there's a sequence of, of qualities that you get in the um, in the teachings that I wanted to share with you, and it's, it's, it appears a number of times, but um, particularly in the what's called the Panchataya Sutta, not the punctured tire. Pancha means five and Taya means three, so it means the five and the three, the Panchataya Sutta. So Sutta number 102 in the in the middle length discourses and there's, there's a, many different aspects uh, to it but uh, one of the interesting things is it it talks about how the uh, and it will go on to anatta in a moment but how uh, conceit or self-view takes over even wholesome states like um, and quite unconsciously and so in the, the the very end of this sutra it talks about that and bhikkhu bodhi sort of translated it very very skillfully here. Uh, so the Buddha, this is um, the, the very last page of the Sutta. Here, bhikkhus, some recluse or Brahmin, some meditator, with the relinquishing of views about the past and the future, through complete lack of resolve upon the fetters of sensual pleasure, so letting go of sense desire, with a surmounting uh, of the rapture of seclusion, unworldly pleasure, and neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he regards himself thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. And just to make sure that we get the point, Bhikkhu Bodhi's put the I, italics and underlined. I am at peace. I have attained Nibbana. I am without clinging. So you're sitting there meditating and everything is, is very quiet and bright and peaceful, spacious. There's a, you know, a quality of delight um, and not even attaching to neutral feeling. So the, 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 the mind is so incredibly bright, spacious, peaceful. And then the thought arises, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. The Tathagata Bhikkhus understands this thus, this good recluse or, Bra- or Brahmin, this meditator, with a relinquishing of views about the past and the future and so, and so forth, regards themselves thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. Certainly this venerable one asserts the way directed to Nibbana, yet this good recluse or Brahmin still clings clinging either to a view about the past or a view about the future, or to a fetter of sensual pleasure, or to the rapture of seclusion, or to unworldly pleasure, like a sort of transcendent bliss or or, um, uh, wholesome, blissful states, or to neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And when this venerable one regards himself thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging, that too is declared to be clinging on the part of this good recluse or Brahmin. That is conditioned and gross, but there is the cessation of formations, the sankhara kaya. Having understood there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. Because this supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, that is, liberation through not clinging. Once again, that's that sabedamanalang avinibesaya I was talking about. Liberation through not clinging. It's not exactly those words there, but it's the same essential meaning. By understanding as they actually are, the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of the six bases of contact. Because that is the supreme state of sublime peace discovered by the Tathagata, liberation through not clinging. By understanding as they actually are, the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape 
in the base in the case of the six bases of contact. So that's in a way that's the essence of of um, insight meditation as well. So the origin and disappearance, watching conditions you know, arising, passing away. That this delightful feeling arises, passes away. This this feeling of I arises, passes away. This feeling of pain arises, passes away. Uh, the origin, the disappearance, the gratification. That's the uh, the Pali is asada. So that's the yes. This is beautiful. This is blissful. This is delicious. This is exactly what I wanted. You know, this is the uh, the uplifting. This is the refreshing. Yes, that's asada. But its partner is adinava, and they go together. You don't get the <laughs> the the asada and the adinava. They're a pair, like the front and the back of the hand. Adinava is the liability or the downside or the disappointment, the uh, uh, the the lack of that thing. So asada is gratification. Adinava is the the downside or the, the liability, the the um, the shadow, if you like. And so those always go together. And then the escape <laughs> is that very awareness of saying, "Oh, this is how this whole process works. This is the gratification. This is the danger. Aha! This is how it works." And so it's through that. Um, uh, through that quality uh, of awareness, and in other teachings that the the Buddha highlights that it's it's through knowing the arising and passing and those uh, states of of, um, of say uh, attachment identification, knowing them as they are. That's what is the, the liberating quality. That's the, what leads to the nisarana is the escape. So I, I find there's a very helpful little collection of terms. So origin, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape. And so that's it. The, the, you can find that all there at the end of Sutta 102 if you're interested to look that up. So, any questions on that before we get to not self? Or something gets to not self? Anatta. Anatta is a principle that no thing that is experienced can be truly said to be who and what we are. No thing can truly be owned. If it is changing and unsatisfying, can it truly be said to be who and what I am? Does it really have an owner? No. This is the most challenging characteristic to understand because the translation into European languages have often misrepresented it. Anatta is often translated in such a way that it sounds like the Buddha was saying that we don't exist or we have no self or no soul. And back in the older days when translations into English were first being done, that would be not uncommon. That you know, the Buddha, the Buddha says you have no soul. Uh, you know, the Buddha says you don't exist. Uh, it's a little, bit, a little less common now, but back in the older days, it was it was very normal, very ordinary. However, there is no place in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says there is no self. So, an interesting little fact that uh, Ajahn Tanisra has pointed out. You can't find anywhere in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says there is no self. Um, he says that all dhammas are not self, sabe dhamma anatta, all dhammas are not self, but there, you know, the, there is no self. And also there's even places where he says someone who clings on to a belief that there is no self is clinging to a wrong view. So that then, uh, but then if the mind says, ah, so there is a self, and he said, no, he doesn't say that either. <laughs> there's a very, very famous, it's not quite a dialogue, it's a one sided dialogue. Where uh, Vachugota, who was one of the, the, the Buddha's um, regular visitors, he was a wanderer from a different group, came in and uh, one time paid respect to the Buddha and uh, bowed down before him and said, Does the self exist? 
and the Buddha didn't reply. And then Vajrakota said, does the self not exist? And the Buddha didn't reply. I sat there. And then, so then Vajrakota was sort of puzzled by this and bowed and, and left. And then, and then Venerable Ananda, who's often trying to fix things and make, it, make everything all right. Oh, Venerable Sir, that, you know, far be it for me to correct you, but uh, it wouldn't have been helpful for you to, to have engaged with Vajrakota. And he said, well, uh, <clears throat> the way he put the question made it uh, the, the silence was the appropriate answer because if he says, is there a self? And I said, yes. Uh, then does that accord with my teaching that all dhammas are not self? Uh, and if when he says, uh, so is there no self? Then And if I said, that's correct, there's no self, then Vachagota would have thought, well, I had a self when I came here, and now the master tells me I haven't got one. So he would have gone away more confused than when he arrived. So silence was the most appropriate answer. So that's one of the most famous discourses of the Buddha, where he was silent. That's in one of the many encounters with Vachagota. Yes. Um, today I only started listening to Dhamma Talk by Pichan Ham, where he was talking, and I didn't get to listen to it, it was about 20 minutes long, and I only listened to 5 minutes, so I don't know how it's going to go, but he was talking about the um, statement, be an island unto yourself, and he was quoting, he said the Pali phrase is Atta, Deepa Saranam. So take refuge in yourself. Um, as a Buddha statement, I, mm-hmm. I didn't quite catch up. He probably didn't say where exactly it is quoted. It's in the uh, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, just before the Buddha's final passing away. Yeah, that's true because it was the title of the talk, the, the final teaching of the Buddha. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, if you remember, there's a, about colloquial usage of words and how he would use, quite comfortably use o- o- ordinary pronouns like she, he, we, they. Um, and so, um, you know, being an island unto yourself, be a refuge unto yourself, or be a light unto yourself. Deeper can also mean light. So sometimes people translate it as be a light unto yourself or be a lamp unto yourself. So uh, it's a figure. I would say in that particular instance, it's a, it's a figure of speech. It's a way of expressing, just like um, when the, the the Buddha uses personal pronouns, like saying you know, she or he or we or they. Um, then it's not uh, imputing a kind of permanent, separate existence to uh, another being, but it's a convenient way of expressing and carrying, a, conveying a meaning, not intended to mean some sort of permanent individual entity. Also, if you if you that um, there's a very common way that stream entry is described, which is being independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. So that then the 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 mind has arrived at that point of stream entry. So there's that independence, but the independence isn't sort of said talked about as being like a a a single permanent individual person. But he still uses the term independence, like not relying on any other uh, uh, external sources for instruction or or encouragement. Um, so that that uh, there's an interplay of those those qualities of independence and um, that, but also using the reflection on not self. Mm-hmm. 
Also, I think one of the things about all the three characteristics, and I, I, um, I don't know if I make it particularly clear in this this book, but um, they are they're tools to investigate experience. They're not philosophical positions to to grasp. Like, okay, I'm going to find a condition that is is absolutely permanent, or <laughs> uh, I'm going to find a thing that you know, a thing that's not unsatisfactory, or, or I'm going to figure out what the what a, a true self might be. But rather, they're a set of tools to examine the habits of our of our attitudes, so that. Uh, to use a question like, "Well, is this? Does this have an owner, or is this? If this belongs to me, what's what, what's the thing here that is? What's what does the me look like that does the actual owning? What is that? Does that have a place or a shape or such like?" So, uh, and I've always found that a very very helpful aspect of Lumpur Sumedho's teaching. He would emphasize that they're not sort of ideas to grasp or philosophical positions to take. But they're like a toolkit, you know, like a set of screwdrivers or, le- or sort of uh, levers to to work with a, um, a an engine or you know, a machine or so to 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 uh, say help to deconstruct the way that our mind works and to get to know the habits that we have, so that um, that uh, so I, that's the way I encourage that kind of usage. So when you come across a phrase like that, be an island unto yourself, like, hmm, so is it illegal to use the word self in Buddha Dhamma? You know? <laughs> okay, obviously not, because that's a pretty common, that's a kind of, apparently, that's actually the longest discourse in the whole of the Pali Canon. It's like front center. The Buddha's passing away. That's like a, not hidden in a corner. So what does that mean? So to pick it up and explore how that might work is, is a useful thing. So, to continue. The teaching of anatta is about letting go of what we habitually think of as ourselves without creating an idea of what a real self might be and hanging on to that instead. It's a way of looking at how we identify with the body, with our personality, with our personal story, with our memories, our possessions, our reputation, all those things we think of as ourselves, our age, our gender, nationality, everything. So those all revolve, uh, sort of refer to and revolve around what we would call Sakaya Ditti. I think they're talking about these two levels of, I think with, uh, was that you, Alan, that were asking? Uh, connection between Sakaya Ditti and, and Asmi Mana. Asmi Mana, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so these, that first part I'm talking about here is, is all about the Asmi Mana, that sort of, that first level of, of the first of the ten fetters. So, uh, I am the body, I am the personality, I am a man, I am British, I've got uh, an American passport, I'm 65 years old, etc., uh, etc. Et our age, our gender, our nationality, um, that's all in the Sakayaditi domain that um, is uh, sort of uh, addressed and, and, and let go of with, with um, um, say, the insight through self-view. And so that that's um, when we take the teaching on anatta, it's challenging those. Well, I say I'm British, but you know, the, is the carbon dioxide that I just breathed out is that British? And if if uh, Venerable Dhammavijaya breathes it in, does it suddenly become German carbon dioxide? You know, you know, where, where does the Germanness arrive? But I'm, I'm a native German. My my grandfather was half Belgian, half German, so. It was already a bit German before it went over there. It's ridiculous, you know. It's, it's kind of absurd, but uh, so we—it's challenging those habits of the way we judge ourselves and what are the convenient fictions of our names, our ages, our 
our stories, our uh, you know the way that we we define who and what we are. So then, the, uh, going on to uh, asmi mana, there can be the feeling that I am hearing, I am meditating. There's a sense of I as the doer and the experiencer, also the one making choices, the one, there's a me who decides what words to say. <laughs> there's a, a I, the doer, the experiencer. The Buddha's teaching on anatta is a way to challenge that. Yes, there is hearing. Yes, there is thinking. Yes, there's remembering. But what is it that knows those memories? What is it that knows that sound? Is there anything which is an owner of these moods and feelings and thoughts? When that's looked at and explored, no thing can be found which is precisely the doer, the agent of experience and action. So the reflection on that self is a means of letting go rather than taking a philosophical position. And I often uh, mention in this respect uh, there's a, a very fine sutta, Venerable Kemaka, who was a um, very aged monk and quite ill. He was close to the end of his life. And um, it seems that in the Buddha's time, uh, maybe since then, it was quite common uh, when living in a monastery that as your life was coming to an end, that your companions in the holy life would would uh, ask you, so, have you have you finished your work yet? Have you, have you arrived at enlightenment? Yeah. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> but that seems to have been quite a common exchange. Like, have you finished your work? Yeah, as a way of encouragement, just sort of finding out, checking in. So anyway, Venerable Kamek was literally lying on his deathbed, very ill. And so um, some of his friends sent around, I think they sent around a messenger, if I remember the story correctly, and said uh, to ask him, yeah, please ask Venerable Kamek, has he finished his work? And then... And then he sends the messenger back to his friends and says, no, I haven't finished my work. And then it's like the sort of, um, he, he's going back and forth quite a lot. He says, in what way have you not finished your work? <laughs> what, what remains left to do? And so to cut a long story short, he goes back and forth and back and forth. And finally came and goes like, oh, God, these guys are hopeless. <laughs> gets off his deathbed. <laughs> he goes off to, he gets fed up with sending these messages and these endless questions. He's, he's, his dear companions in the holy life keep asking him. So he goes, uh, he goes and visits them. And so then there's this very, very uh, wonderful exchange. And he says, uh, so I have, there's no uh, illusion whatsoever that the five khandhas are not self. So that's very clear that, that that insight into the empty nature of the five khandhas is very clear. And uh, there's no attachment to the body, the personality, and, uh, and so on and so forth, thoughts and feelings. However, this feeling of I still hovers around. It's still it's still in the in the in the air. So just like with a flower, you can smell the fragrance of the flower, but you can't tell where that fragrance comes from. Is it from the pollen? Is it from the petals? Is it from the nectar? Is it from the stem or the, the leaves or the sepals? You, know, you can't tell where it comes from, but you can smell the fragrance of the flower. Said so in exactly exactly the same way. I can't pin down where that I comes from. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be associated, as far as I can tell, with the ordinary or, or tangible, visible aspects of the five khandhas, but it's there. Uh, and, so, and so this is a, a very skillful way of describing that. Uh, as uh, uh, the um, Sakaya Ditti self-view being the kind of obvious forms of attachment, and that subtle sense of I, the experiencer, I, the, 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 the knower, I, the, the, the doer, I, the owner, um, and so forth that uh, he was perceiving 
And what's extremely notable is that he became an arahant, giving that explanation to his friends. So he's one of the very few people that became in, became in line listening to his own Dhamma talk. <laughs> so if you find yourself talking to yourselves in your rooms, it's possible that might result in enlightenment, but it's possible it won't. But it is, it's, it's very rare that someone actually... Uh, sometimes the, the Buddha refers to an idea that occurs to him spontaneously as he's speaking, and he said, I hadn't thought of it before I was speaking about it. But it is quite rare, if not unique, that someone actually realizes total enlightenment hearing their own explanation. And also a few of his mates who were badgering him with all these questions, they also became enlightened too. Not all of them. Some of them also reached enlightenment through the Venerable Kamaka's um, explanation. So that's a, um, a notable encounter in the, in the Pali Buddhist world. When that is looked at and explored, no thing can be found which is precisely the doer, the agent of experience and action. So, the reflection on not-self is a means of letting go rather than taking a philosophical position. So, as I was saying, it's a, it's a tool to, to note, to, to say, in a way, like a, a tire lever, <laughs> to, to get in between the, the, the tire and the rim of the wheel, to, to, to get it in, to lever the, the tire off the rim so you can, you can repair it or replace it, uh, pump up the tire and so forth. So that um, it's, a cha- it's, a, it's a way to challenge those habits. And each one of us is going to have very, very different ways that the sense of I and me and mine forms around our, uh, our emotions, our body, our sensations, the, the world around us, what we hear and see and feel, smell, taste, touch. They're, they're going to have different loadings and different importances for each of us because of our own conditioning, our own background, our own personalities, our own language and stories and so on. So it's a, in terms of developing the practice, it's to do with noticing those areas where the, the, the attention catches, where something really seems to be me and mine, and I. Yeah. Uh, this is mine, or I am this. But, uh, and, uh, and yet, um, that, when that's challenged or explored, then it's, uh, it, it, when, if that's done in a skillful way, then there's a loosening of the grip. So it's not... So some, I lived in California for a long time, and so there, in terms of psychology and psychotherapy, there's a lot of talk about honoring your feelings or honoring your character or honoring your perceptions, which would mean, you know, if you're feeling angry, you honor your anger by acting on your angry feeling. Or you're, if you're, um, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling indulgent, so you honor your indulgent feeling by going out shopping, or, um, that kind of thing. Or, or uh, you know, so that, and I'm not, I'm not belittling that. I mean, it, it does have a, a, a certain validity to it, but it tends to say that you you have to follow an impulse in order to quote unquote honor it. But in terms of Buddhist meditation, you can fully honor an experience like anger or greed or, or deceitfulness, um, selfishness. You can honor that, know it completely, fully accept it, and not follow it. So that's, that I feel, is a crucial difference between Buddhist psychology and Californian psychology. Maybe, I hope you're not a Californian psychologist. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what your background is. No, so. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Californian psychologist. Um, I have a question about self. Um, I'm wondering if in the Pali discourses and in Buddhism there is a distinction between self with a small S 
Depends which Buddhist you talk to. So, in the Pali, there is there isn't any kind of way that a, the, the self with a big S is is represented, and that the Buddha very assiduously, carefully, and thoroughly um, avoids that. And any attempt to to sort of pin down a, a real self or a true self, even though there might be colloquial usage of you know be an island unto yourself, which people have made much of in the past. <laughs> uh, not sister, but you know, other sort of writers in the past have said, see, the Buddha did talk about a real self. But over and over and over and over again, he points out how there's a, a kind of what they call an eternalism, or a, um, uh, uh, that bhavatana, the desire to become, that desire for formed being, defined being, that's behind that. And he's extraordinarily thorough um, in talking about neither attaching to being or non-being. And even to the point where he was, he was often criticised and saying you know, the people have wrongly and falsely accused the Tathagata of uh, of um, espousing a philosophy of the destruction of an existent being. I, I don't teach that, and I've never taught that. That's not what I teach. What I teach is that you know all dhammas are not self. Or if there's with, if there's clinging, then the suffering will ensue, and so on. So he's very very careful in that. In other Buddhist traditions, um, in the northern Buddhist world in particular. Then you do get that kind of expression is used, but uh, it, 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 there's no backup for it really in the in the Pali Canon, and the, the, and the Buddha is really really careful in trying to help the mind not to create an idea of a real self and then just hang on to the idea. And that was his method: was that rather than just giving a people people a sort of poetic form, like well, you know, the real the real self is this, or a poetic form or a sort of refined philosophical form. His method was like keep letting go of what you're not, and what is real will remain. And just going over and over and over again to that. So any idea of what uh, what we really are, you say, "Oh, I am the Dhamma. That's what I am. Or, I am the absolute reality. Or, you know, I am embodied awareness. That's that's the real me." It's like, well, that's just a set of words. <laughs> yeah, embodied awareness is just two words. It's the embodied awareness is not embodied awareness. It's just two words that describe that quality. So what we and and I think it seems that the Buddha saw right from the get-go how easily we take an idea or a name for something and then we just hang on to the idea and we miss the reality. And so that he uh, his teaching on the four noble truths and then the way that he approached that also absolutely not talking about what happens to an enlightened being after the death of the body as nothing. He doesn't. He just won't speak about it. He said, "Well, you can tell me. You, know, like, you can tell us, venerable sir. You know, it might be a secret to them. You know, but but absolutely nothing. You know, he says, no. You, it's one who has reached the end has no criterion where, where, uh, by which they can be measured. It's like the the, you know, the 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 words and concepts run out. It's like saying what happened before the Big Bang happened doesn't apply." Time didn't exist, so before doesn't apply. I mean, there's also physicists can come up with all kinds of different things, but just as an example, say if time began at the Big Bang, you can't say before. Before doesn't have a meaning. <laughs> so it's exactly that sort of collapsing of usual ideas. That's what the Buddha was over and over and over again throughout his whole teaching career of forty-five years. He uh, uh, he was very very resolute on that, so he wouldn't talk about 
any kind of a real self. He wouldn't talk about sort of where you know where does an enlightened being go? What happens to an enlightened being when they pass away? Because it must be some really super super heaven. Because he saw that the mind creates its images in terms of human identity or, or you know the identity of a living being of time of place if time doesn't apply identity doesn't apply location doesn't apply there's, you know, there, there, there's no means of, of any kind of meaningful description so he, he realized better to have no uh, just uh, leave it wordless and even though people might misunderstand that say so you just annihilated it no that's not <laughs> One who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which has that, that which could be spoken of is no more. You cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes of being, all phenomena are removed, all means of speaking have gone too. So it's a bit like Wittgenstein saying, you know, that which we can uh, uh, you know, that which we cannot describe, then you know, the mind must necessarily pass over. And uh, so that it's frustrating for people who like to have everything figured out. <laughs> a good explanation for everything, which I, I spent a lot of time uh, trying to 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 do. Um, but uh, I, I realized the genius of that over time as a spiritual method is is absolutely marvelous because you can't just hang on to the idea of you know, of an ultimate reality or an image of it or a uh, a um, uh, an emotional bond to it it's just uh, to an idea of it but it's all it's all pointing to <laughs> the path you know the, the the way that is realized and actualized with through the experience of a through a, a jitta through the mind to the jitta and that's so that's he really i mean it's amazing really incredible that right at the very get-go he realized that's what's going to make a difference having a beautiful description doesn't work well, when he when he met the wanderer Upaka on the road after his enlightenment, the first person that he met, and Lumpur Sumedha would often point out, actually the first discourse wasn't the turning of the wheel in the deer park, it was the dialogue with Upaka on the road. And Upaka, who was another wanderer, saw the, the Buddha coming along and thought, wow, this, this kind of radiant yogi is kind of walking towards me, he's kind of tall and, and bright and serene. And he says, Venerable Sir, you know, you're... Your, your faculties are very radiant, you're incredibly peaceful. Have you discovered some great truth? Uh, have you had some sort of realization, some sort of transformation? You know, what, have you, what have you learned? Who is your teacher? What, what, what is it you've discovered? And the Buddha said, uh, yeah, I have realized the deathless and I have no teacher. I am the only, the only all-enlightened being in the world. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, so and then Upaka said, "Well, so from what you say, you know, you're like you're totally realized being. That's what your claim is. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I have uh, awake, completely awakened to the the absolute reality, uh, and now I'm going to Varanasi to beat the drum of deathlessness." So Upaka said, "Well, good for you, friend." And, right. Took off by a separate path. So, there are there are stories about what happened to Upaka afterwards. <laughs> But uh, not in the original canon. But uh, so the Buddha, uh, and as Lumpur Samadhi would point out, uh, would often point out, Upaka was a, uh, sorry. The Buddha was a quick learner after his dialogue with Upaka. And said, "Okay, so declaration of absolute reality doesn't work. Okay, let's try a different approach." And so then, so rather than you know, there, there is the ultimate reality, and I have totally realized it and, and embody it. 
that uh, said, well, that's subject to, to debate and, and question, so let's try something else. And so by the time he got to the deer park in Varanasi, then he started off with dukkha. That is much less up for debate. And so that, uh, and the, the, the background to it is that yeah, if there is an ultimate reality, then uh, why are we not blissful and peaceful and fully content all the time? If that's the, if that's the fundamental nature of reality, why are we not blissfully happy and peaceful and fulfilled all the time? Why is that? So that's where he kind of starts off is why is there dukkha? But the background to it is that, and I think I talk about that in the next section, that uh, the, the sort of the Hindu philosophy of Satchitananda being consciousness bliss, if that's the, if that's the ground of reality, why is that not experienced by beings all the time? Why is there dissatisfaction and alienation? discontent you know where's that coming from so he approached so that's a, a common experience that everyone could relate to rather than i am the ultimate reality <laughs> well good for you and yeah that's often the experience when you meet someone who says who in the in the marlows that says you know i'm the ultimate reality <laughs> well fine yeah um, uh, i need to get to my car <laughs> okay. got something to do in the shops anyway let's carry on Oh yes. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm trying to understand. I'm realizing that the more we think we're making a choice, there's ego um, and self involved, and that the only thing we really can do is try to purify our hearts and minds, cultivate good and wisdom. But then, if that's the case, who, what's doing that? Is that habit energy? <laughs> well, it's, I would say it's a combination of mindfulness and wisdom, you know, the, 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 the citta uh, operating free of greed, hatred and delusion is inclined towards wholesome action. So that's the, the uh, uh, I was co- quoting Lumpo Sumedho, when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha. It's a way of symbolizing it. So when the awake mind sees the way things are, what arises is wholesome action. So, you know, you're alive. You have a life, and uh, and so you have a capacity to act in the world, and so then um, that 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 being part of the world and the capacity to act in the world, uh, and then the, if the heart is free of greed, hatred, and delusion to a great, a great degree, then those actions and wh- and what what to do and how to do it in the world will be inclined towards what's beneficial, what's wholesome, what's kindly, what's unselfish, and, and so on, and so. Um, uh, essentially, what the, the more the heart is is free of greed, hatred, and delusion, then what guides action is mindfulness and wisdom and attunement to the time, the place, the situation. You know, the, the body carries on, and the skillful looking, skillfully looking after the health of the body, and then social situations, working together with the people that you you have in your family or your workplace or living here in the monastery. Then, so that is all the sort of the playing out of choices that have happened in the past or, or events that have happened in the past having been born into a particular family or having a particular career or qualifications or contracts you signed <laughs> they're, they're still there those aspects of the, the conditioned world are still, are still functioning so those are sort of played through but the mind relates to those in a, in a, 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 a much lighter and non-possessive fashion does that make sense? So, and then what's guiding action is mindfulness and wisdom, rather than 
then mm. a, a lot of self-view and, and just um, conditioned habit. <coughs> okay, just finish this, this section. Um, also, just to, to mention, it's kind of interesting, this isn't a, an insight into not-self, it's not confined to the Buddhist fold. The uh, Scottish philosopher David Hume, back in the 18th century, I think. Any philosophers here? David Hume, was he? No. <laughs> no philosophers here. I think he was 18th century Scottish. But uh, yeah, he also had some very interesting insights into not-self. He said basically the similar thing, that when I... When I, I when, uh, there's a, an exploring of, um, of you know this mind and the, the, the process of perception and feeling that I can recognize. Yeah, there's thinking going on, there's feeling going on. But when I look for the the person who's doing the feeling and thinking, that I can't find anything there. I can't find a, a, anybody there. So he was sort of articulating in a in an academic um, philosophical mode that same sort of insight into into not self and then bringing that into the the picture back in the the uh, the the enlightenment with a small e era the eighteenth century so. when it's when it's looked at and explored, no thing can be found which is precisely the doer, the agent of experience in action, so the reflection on not self is a means of letting go rather than taking a philosophical position. We might practice vipassana meditation and come to think. I am pure awareness, that's what I am. I am the Dhamma, that's the real me. <laughs> I've forgotten I've written that next time. Uh, uh, I'm just using those examples before, but you know, those are the kind of thoughts that, that uh, with insight can arise. Now, that's the real me. But the thought, I am the Dhamma, is just a thought. The thought, I am awareness, is just a thought. The, me- the method of Vipassana meditation is to keep letting go of any kind of identifying to let go of grasping thoughts or images or concepts, and to simply embody that knowing awake quality. One of the most useful teachings that the Buddha gave on this area is the statement, whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. Yena yena himanyanti tatatanghoti anyatati. That appears many times in the, in the canon. Yena yena himanyanti tatatanghoti anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. So that a concept cannot accommodate reality, hasn't got enough dimensions. So another example I, I use to illustrate that is if you've got a, a, a drawing of a glass, even a very good drawing, yeah. Eleonora did a fantastic drawing of a glass, you couldn't pour water into the drawing. Water is three-dimensional, the drawing is two-dimensional. So no matter how good the drawing is, it hasn't got enough dimensions to contain the reality. And so... That, that insight that the Buddha uh, seems to have had right from the very beginning was that concept and language can't really contain the reality of, of Dhamma. It's got, it's got too many dimensions. And so rather than trying to force the three-dimensional Dhamma into two-dimensional words and, and, and ideas, he, uh, he realized you know, best to not try that and to talk about how the Dhamma can be realized directly rather than just creating an idea about it or an explanation or a, 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 a verbalizing, a wording around it. Does that make sense? Sister, yes. I just feel like making a comment in the time of Californian psychologists. <laughs> 
please, please. Um, and I don't specialize in any way in Californian psychology, but um, I honestly have never heard any psychologist encouraging people acting up on anger. I, I just haven't. So I have heard the phrase "honor your feelings," but I've never, I've never heard anyone in, encouraging people to act upon it. And I think it might, it might. So one of my pet subjects, as I've confessed many times before, is spiritual bypassing. Yes. And um, so to me, that would come in from that angle, like honoring your feelings in terms of recognize it. Mm-hmm. Admit it, acknowledge it, it's here, rather than try to bypass it by pretending to feel loving kindness when you feel angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and also, as you often say, like, for example, pain or fear work by being unpleasant, and that's how it kept you alive um, for a lot of your life. In a similar way, anger also signalizes something, um, some of your boundaries being crossed or something gone wrong. So you might need to take an action, but not angry action or unwholesome action, but just adjust perhaps something, or just investigate your anger, or maybe challenge your beliefs, which make you angry, but um, yeah, just I just haven't heard the encouragement for people to act upon their anger. Um, uh, maybe it's not something in vogue now, but I did visit Esalen Institute a few times. I was invited to to teach at Esalen a few times, and uh, some of the encounter groups that they had there back in the early days were pretty startling. That's how I heard, and and also um, uh, any of anybody who was involved in uh, Rajneesh in uh, India in Pune, there were physical injuries incurred, were incurred, bones broken. So. It does back and back in those maybe seventies, eighties, nineties, and seventies and eighties. It was that was part of it. But I started going to California in nineteen ninety, so it was in the in the, the wake of that. And, and I, yeah, I went to Esalen about four or five times, five or six times. So I got to know quite a few of the people there and um, the things that had happened in the past. It was all a bit more sedate, incredibly expensive. So that filtered out a lot of a certain amount of the wildness, but there was certainly um, there, I was there when there was some workshops going on that were um, based on on this kind of encounter group processes and, and uh, also used a lot of sleep deprivation and, and acting out um, as part of them. So I was literally around with that happening around me. So. On, so I have been close to that dimension of things. So I'm not just I'm not trying to sort of say you're wrong, but uh, uh, that certainly was part of the mix early on, and probably it's faded out because of the the negative consequences of it. But it was uh, it certainly it used to be uh, part of that uh, that dynamic was that acting out as as far as I'm aware. As I said, I'm not going to serve Californian psychology more than I do. Was it a release of the anger, like suppressed anger, and was a kind of purging? 
Uh, I, th- I think that was the uh, the idea. Again, I, I wouldn't pre- I wouldn't pretend to be an expert either. But rather than bottling things up or containing things inside, then that idea of expressing was a way of uh, the intention was to release it. But then sometimes in the effort to release, you're actually dramatizing or in, strengthening the the impulse. Rather than releasing it, you're inflating it, strengthening it. So that it would take a very good therapist or someone who really knows what they're doing to guide a, a, a group or an encounter, uh, an event like that. But uh, they, that's, I think, the intention. Because also in the USA, coming out of, in particular, coming out of a very repressive era of the, the 50s and the early 60s, so it sort of it emerged into these many different techniques, people like Fritz Perls and yeah, with Gestalt therapy and these kind of... Um, uh, pro, uh, say methods that were being developed late 60s, early 70s, and so then it was all being kind of acted out and used through the 70s and, the, and the, into the 80s. Uh, but I think the um, uh, certainly I, I knew um, a, a guy who was part of the original group at Rajneeshpuram, not Raj, uh, Pune, Rajneesh Ashram in Pune. He was part of the original psychotherapeutic group, a guy called John Bell, and um, he and his brother were both part of that. and the, he eventually left with a very uh, uh, great degree of disappointment and, and uh, anger. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there was. Uh, he had some pretty pretty wild stories to tell about about the the Pune ashram in the, in the seventies. Uh, from direct experience, he was like he was in it. He was helping to organize those groups. He was part of the. Facilitating those those groups and introducing all that stuff, and so it was. Um, so I do have some fairly close information on that area. So anyway, we're about to get onto the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, but not today. Leave it there for now. Sa-